Welcome back to Mon Men. I am Yanato Blue here once again with Michael Darlin. Uh, welcome back. We are recording this on the 25th anniversary of Pokemon, on Pokemon Day itself. Uh, and we've got a lot of news to talk about before we wrap up the second generation of Pokemon. It's just us today, so you know, it's going to be a nice, intimate affair. Yeah, celebrating the quarter century of Pokemon's existence. Uh, you know, thinking back to the fact that we were nine-ish, ten-ish years old when this when this whole thing first started, and uh, and yeah, we've got some news to discuss today to bring us back God, out of a uh, hibernation. That just aged me without even trying to. Yep, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you are you are very likely at least twenty-five years old since we've been talking about playing Red Blue and all that. Um, <laughs> Well, it came here later, but yeah, just that's, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, it's one thing to, it's one thing to accept like, oh yeah, Pokemon's turning 25. Yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. But then to be reminded, you were nine when that happened. Mm -hmm. It's just, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, for me it was kind of like, I mean, it's not so much shocking that it's been around this long. Although I guess, you know, actually no, it is, it is shocking that the 25 years that have suddenly added up, like it doesn't feel like it's been 25 years, you know? Like, yeah. we've talked about the fact that, you know, a lot of people with this franchise, especially in our age group, have kind of moved away from it, come back to it because of, like, different generational things that have, like, been developed, like Pokemon Go and things like that. But, um, but you know, to see that add up as 25 years that this franchise has just been a monolith is really something. Oh, yeah. Well, there was that, uh, like, five-minute video at the beginning of the Pokemon presentation on Friday that was just like, here's basically everything from the history of this franchise with the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. Just like the amount of, you know, in some cases, nostalgia, in some cases of, oh, they did that too, mm -hmm. is insane to me. Yeah. And this just allows us to say that Ash is officially a layabout uh, idiot Gen Zer who just can't seem to get his shit together. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's still 10 years old, or what? Like He's 25 years old, technically. <laughs> he's been I trying would say to... that if Ash is aging in real time, he should actually be 35 at this point. This is true. Um, but yeah, I'm just going by age of the show. The show has been going for 25 years now. It says the show is as old as the, uh, as the franchise itself, pretty much, and Ash still isn't a Pokemon master. <laughs> it's um, true. But, you know, yeah. one that does remind me of... Uh, have you ever heard of the comics on which the Judge Dredd movies were based? Um, what is that? 2000 AD, I believe is the title? I forget what the title is, but the Judge Dredd comic strip, apparently the original creator, I don't know if he still is, but he was still, like, illustrating them daily for the UK newspaper that they appear in, and apparently it's one of the few comic strips in which the main character ages in real time with the comic's continuity. So huh. Judge Dredd has, at this point, become, like, I think he's something like... 80 years old and sitting on like the elder tribunal council or something like that like he was 30 when really? he started or something it's been going for like a crazy long time but he has aged in the comics huh. in proportion with how long it's been running um huh. that's interesting that sounds like the kind of thing that you might be into you know what else you might be into uh well do we want to do mon mom first or do we want to talk a little bit about the news that was announced um 
Yeah, let's talk about the news because we're kind of uh, we're kind of on the 25th anniversary run. So, uh, Michael, what's been going on in the world of Pokemon? Let's go over to our news. Okay. Cast. So yes, moving over to the Pokemon news desk. Uh, <laughs> so the big ones are we have a lot of game announcements. We already knew that Pokemon new Pokemon Snap would be coming out in April, which looks like it's just going to be beautiful. And we've been wanting a Pokemon Snap sequel forever, so it's very exciting to have this one that is just you know crisp and HD, and all of the Pokemon look fantastic in it. Uh, we've got the Diamond and Pearl remakes, which. Uh, look like they're going to be interesting. We don't really have much more information other than they're going to be sticking to the same, you know, design of the original one, but a bit more souped up and kind of in a, you know, chibi animation style. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the most exciting one is, of course, Pokemon Legends Arceus, which looks like it's going to be an open-world Pokemon game, which is something that fans have been wanting for a while as well. So... We don't know much about that other than it's set in the distant past of the Sinnoh region. Mm -hmm. And yeah, looks like it should be cool. Looks like it's going to be different. Looks very Breath of the Wild. And you know, more information on all of this as it goes, I guess. A little bit interesting to me that the quote-unquote distant past has the highly mechanized advanced technology of Pokeballs, though. Well, it's like prototype Pokeballs. Or maybe they were like spiritual Pokeballs. That we yeah. then convert I mean, I like technology. I think about it in terms of how there are tanks and Avatar. Well, I mean, because obviously Avatar is set in the distant future. Oh, you're talking <laughs> about Avatar, the uh, last the Airbender. Last Airbender. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought you were talking about the uh, the world record breaking franchise by James Cameron. Because what Never else would we be talking about? <laughs> well, you will for the next ten years. You'll be hearing about Avatars two through five. <laughs> I'm going to watch those movies just so I can make fun of them effectively. Like I'm it's going to be a definite hate watch. It's kind of like cats, like I know I'm not contributing to the to anything um because nobody's going to go see those movies, but I want to be able to make fun of them. <laughs> I mean the real question is are you going to spend 4 hours watching the Snyder cut when that drops? Ugh, no. I tried watching Good. Justice League in uh in quarantine. I think it was in December when it went up on HBO Max. I got like 30 minutes into it and legitimately it felt like work. Like it was so boring and so nonsensical. It wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't any actual dialogue in this movie. It's really, it's really interesting to me and experimental, very like French, like Art Nouveau to have just characters saying things, but not actually saying, like having conversations with each other in any scene. Like, just like a bunch of random declarative statements. <laughs> declarative <laughs> statements, the movie. Um, so, no, I did not like it very much. Um, I'm pretty sure I made it to, to the point where, spoilers, uh, a dude comes back to life who may or may not be ja uh, Snyder's analog for Christ. Is this a man who perhaps is super in some capacity? Yes, uh, we're on the same page. It's Perry White, spoilers. Um, okay. Lawrence Fishburne, Perry White is the last thing I remember seeing, uh, and I just remember I just remember thinking to myself, like as I turned off the TV, I remember thinking to myself, Lawrence Fishburne, you deserve so much better than this. Hey, he got paid. This is true. <laughs> this is true. Um, right. So, but, yeah, any thoughts on the new games before we move on to Mon Mom? Um, I mean, Legends is the one that I think we've all been waiting for forever. Although I do want to point out that I believe that I 
just remembered this recently, and I wanted to kind of double check this with you, but I remember when during like campaign season, like early in campaign season, AOC was doing a lot of like Twitch streams and stuff like that. And I do believe, so. well, I think it was one of her earlier Twitch streams before campaign season really got kicked off. But I mean, campaign season is perennial at this point. Um, and she brought up that her favorite N64 game on a question was Pokemon Snap. And I feel like although Pokemon Snap has always had like a cult following and like a good nostalgia attached to it, AOC mentioning it definitely galvanized the sort of groundswell of support. And I think that AOC was the mouthpiece that created the sort of like notice for Nintendo to be like, oh, this is something people actually want. Okay. <laughs> So I would like to thank AOC for giving us Pokemon Snap, is my point. Um, I would also like to point out that, you know, I think, uh, I feel like Pokemon Legends, here's me really trying to find somebody to get mad at for this, in this case. This is, it's like that tweet where, you know, every day somebody on here just invents a new type of person to get mad at. Um this is me getting mad at the person who did not come up with this idea sooner because all of the pieces were there. There's nothing about like this Pokemon Legends that seems revolutionary except for the fact that they're finally doing it. And there's yeah. nothing in that trailer that looks like it could not have been done two, three, four, even five years ago on the Wii U. Like, if, and I mean, and you know, mon like Monkey's Paw or whatever, hindsight being 2020. I feel like if they had committed to this idea five years ago and they absolutely had the technology to do it because Pokemon Go had already come out and all that sort of thing, um, with the Wii U generation, this game could have single-handedly saved the Wii U. Um, which, you know, in case anybody doesn't remember, there was a console between the original Nintendo Wii and the Nintendo Switch that Nintendo just kind of uh, <laughs> has swept under the rug. Um, what are your thoughts, Michael, before I mar the occasion with too much of my cynicism <laughs> <laughs> well i think what you're saying is true in that there are definitely people making i saw this joke many times on twitter yesterday which was uh that the pokemon company finally quote hired this man in reference to basically any time someone would say like yeah there should be an open world pokemon game there would just be like floods of game freak hire this man so yes they finally quote hired this man just like making the idea that everyone has come up with at some point of let's do an open world Pokemon. I think what's neat is that they've decided to set so much in the past mm -hmm. rather than in contemporary Pokemon universe. And I think that's going to be a cool different thing. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this universe developed. I mean, there's a really... I really hope that they have like a Kojima-style paradox where you could potentially kill one of Professor Oak's predecessors and forebears <laughs> and screw the timeline and you get like a very uh, Metal Gear Solid style game over screen of you have ruined the timeline. <laughs> I don't know I don't know if you ever played Metal Gear Solid 3 but because you could kill a young Revolver Ocelot and create a time paradox in that prequel the game would automatically end if you killed Revolver Ocelot. I love it. Because I think you had like one brief moment where you could kill him in the game. Um, Isn't there a Metal Gear boss fight at some point where it's against an old man and you can just leave the room and he'll die of natural causes. Mm -hmm. It's a, That's also Metal Gear Solid 3. His name is The End. Nice. Um, he literally sleeps except for when he's sniping you um, because he apparently knows that he is about to die and he only wants to use his life force to fight you. <laughs> um, Goals. 
goals. I mean, well, yeah. you know what I want to use my life force for? Taking on some Mon Moms. So, yeah. Uh, this week, uh, we are covering a good bit of ground to wrap up Gen 2, and uh, that means legendaries and some honorary legendaries, as I like to call them. Um, Pseudo legendaries? Yeah, I'm gonna. We're probably gonna disagree on the pronunciation of every single Pokemon today, Michael. <laughs> just as a uh, just as a heads up, but um, today we're going through the three legendary Woofos: uh, Raikou, Entei, Suicune. Uh, we've also got the Tyranitar line with Larvitar, Pupitar, and Tyranitar, and then we've got the uh, sort of poster children for this generation. Finally. Lugia and Ho-Oh, and we're closing off with Celebi. I agreed with most of those pronunciations. Really? Huh. This is the yeah. first time we haven't had that uh, that head-to-head. All right, yeah, so there's a couple where I was like, that seems different, but we'll get to that. So I have sent my mother a picture of one of these amazing Pokemon today, and she has described it, given it a name, and it is up to Michael to see if he can, for one last time this generation, uh, mind meld with my mom and figure out which one she's talking about. Are you ready, Michael? Yes. All right, here we go. I'm doing the Professor X, uh, to me, my X-Men kind of head pose, ready to go. <laughs> this Pokemon looks like a colored Kobo. I will name it Spot. So... Michael, in the interest of fairness, uh, do you know what a Kobo is? I have no idea. Is that... I want to say it's some kind of bear. So, so good thing I saved you, and I'm um, being gracious about this. So actually, uh, I'll let you update this guess, but I do want to hear, based on your initial reaction, which Pokemon would you think it is? A colored Kobo. So if I'm thinking, you know, something mammalian and furry, I would say, like, Entei, but Entei is not really that colorful. So I think it really comes down to the colored bit. So I'm going to go with either Ho-Oh, it's either Ho-Oh, Celebi, or Raikou. Okay. So... That's, okay, I'll need just... No, so this I is one of those cases where I get to do a little bit of Trinidadian education for the podcast and for the listeners. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm so, just, let me just put my money down on something. I'm going to go with Raikou. Okay, so in Trinidad, uh, because Trinidad was a was a colony that was passed among a bunch of different European powers throughout its throughout the centuries, uh, we do have a lot of French influence for a brief period of time when we were held by the French. Um and so we have taken to calling vultures in Trinidad, and I believe uh, we, oh. call them, we call them Kobos, but this is a bastardization and kind of a catch-all term for a bird of carrion that we're applying. Kobo in French, uh, and it, I don't think it's pronounced that way. I think that's a Trinidadian dialectical uh, pronunciation of it, but it's actually French for uh, raven. Um, so I think huh. we just kind of took the term for like an equivalent sort of bird of carrion and applied it to our own local domestic birds of uh birds of carrion um but that should make the you know if you're thinking of a vulture um i think yeah. you have a pretty obvious guess as to which pokemon she's talking about definitely ho there you go uh so one thing i do kind of want to talk about uh before we launch into the the legendary doggos um okay is... well that's where we're gonna have to disagree but we'll get there in a moment Fair enough. Um, 
but before we do, um, you know, this one thing I didn't realize about this generation that comes up now that we're talking about the legendaries is that there is a definite shift in the sort of marketing approach for this one, where in the previous generation, the masthead and poster children for the first generation of games and, you know, even Pokemon Yellow, if we lump it into that, um, is our starter Pokemon. You know, you have Charmander, yep. you have Blastoise, and you have uh, and you have Pikachu on the covers of those yeah. games. And Venusaur in the original green as well. Yeah, and then, uh, but what happens is, as of this generation moving forward, we have a shift to where the legendaries become a the figurehead of the franchise, but also where the legendaries become a trade-off in themselves. Um, because, you know, you had the silver version with Lugia on it, you had the gold version with Ho-Oh on it, and you were buying a version to choose which one of those two legendaries you wanted first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember, like, I mean, this is partly because of the marketing, but, you know, you didn't really have an idea based on whether you're choosing red or blue which Pokemon your version came with and didn't come with. Yeah. Um, whereas this one makes it a very clear, big decision. Do you want the legendary, you know, ocean bird or do you want the legendary mountain bird? Um <laughs> is kind of the feeling I got from them. Um, and that's something that we see continue throughout the generations from now on. You know, the le- it's the legendaries that define the sort of marketing tone and style for each generation here onward. Um, so I just wanted to point that out as a shift. Um, but also as a result, it does kind of diminish the value of these, uh, of these, of these woofos. I think, uh, I think a woofo is a good kind of catch-all term for them. One who woofs. Um... <laughs> So, let's start with uh, with Raikou. Um, okay. Well, all right. So I pronounce it Raikou. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I just assume that's how it is. I haven't found. Let me see if I can pull up a trusty Pokemon pronunciation, because uh, we've done that so many times on this show now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Raikou, as I'll refer to it for the time being, is an electric type. So let's talk a little bit about these legendaries. You keep calling them doggos or wolfos. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up with people calling them the legendary dogs, but I've also heard legendary cats. But to me, Raikou is a cat. He's very saber-toothed tigery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other ones, at least Entei, looks more like a dog for sure, no question. Suicune, mm-hmm. uh, Suicune, I'm really not sure on that pronunciation either. I'm not really sure how, uh, like what animal it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So let's take it one at a time. Let's start with our electric kitty here. I mean, overall, my general... We're going to disagree about pronunciations and all that. And yeah, I definitely agree with you on the saber-toothed tiger thing for the first one. I think later it becomes... Like, with the other two, it becomes a little bit more... Uh, well, no, it's. I think it's really only Entei that has the, like, more bear-slash-dog appearance. But, you know, I, I love these three Pokemon. They just went... It just looks like they kind of had, like, a grab bag of little, like, accoutrement and just went to town. Like, there are just so many charm points to this Pokemon where it's, like, really easily identifiable by, like, its major colors, the yellow and the black. But then you've got, like, so many weird things like the lightning bolt, like, starshine tail thing, the weird, like, Vulpix-looking cape, I guess. Oh, yeah. Or is that a mullet? Like, I've, I think of it as a cape. I like your description of it as a mullet. But yeah, it's supposed to be like a, 
uh, a storm cloud. Yeah, and, and the, it's just so good. And let's also talk it about the Russell Crowe gladiator style like headpiece that it seems to be wearing. Like I'm sure that's probably just like its fur and jowls and all that, like its nose. But it definitely it definitely looks a little bit like the uh, the iconic helmet that Russell Crowe wears in Gladiator to me. Um, <laughs> and I mean that yeah. in a very good way because that's a fantastic film. Yeah, both Raikou and Entei have very much helmet aesthetic going on. It's not so much in Suicune, Suicune. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the backstory of the beasts before we get into each individual one. Mm -hmm. uh, so you first find these three bad boys at the bottom of the Burn Tower in Ecritique City, and after they see you, they flee and just start roaming freely around Johto. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the other legendaries you encountered in Red and Blue, where you go clear a dungeon and then there they are at the end. You have to run into these guys in the wild, because they're just running all over the map, and it becomes kind of a game in itself to figure out like okay how do i get to this town and how do i then find them where they are because there's some it's something along the lines of depending on if you leave a gate they'll move closer or farther away or something mm -hmm. so yeah it's very much becomes a strategy game in trying to figure out how to encounter them yeah and, this is i'll admit this is where uh my pokemon silver game lost me on the hunt for all 251 is these guys it just felt way too random and time consuming i don't go in for rng based side quests hmm. see that was the thing i actually like this because it seemed it added to the world having just these chance encounters with legendary monsters oh yeah no i definitely like i like it but for my ocd that we have talked about i can't like be a completionist when this is the thing that is going to be stressing me out as something that i have no control over um, which is which is to say that's a lot of the Pokemon experience is getting that getting into that random chance and that sort of RNG um, aspect of it. But you know, I I like the creativity of it. I like the fact that it does make the world feel a little bit more real in some ways yeah. because that is what it's going for and that is what it accomplishes. Um, you know, you're creating a sort of it is a it is a manipulable system, but it is a very real type of system with these wild animals running around fairly randomly. Yeah, it feels, you know, like running into a Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Except for then you can capture the Bigfoot and make it attack lesser Bigfeet. I mean, that's been the goal, I assume, with Bigfoot from the first blurry photo that was ever taken of it. <laughs> Man has always longed to capture the Bigfoot. Yeah, but... I mean, we were <laughs> just thinking, like, it's like King Kong. Like, what was the end goal there? Just, you know, you capture King Kong, you do your Broadway show with King Kong, and then people just come and see it, and that's the show? Yeah, I mean, what happens after the first week when everybody's seen King Kong? Like, what's the sequel I mean, to what, King Kong? Queen Kong? I mean, I'm with you there on that question, but what is the... What happens after the first five minutes of looking up at this giant ape in a theater? Like, then what is the show? I have no idea. Like that part of it never made any sense to me. And like what they and like apparently like I mean the whole premise of King Kong is just very weird. Like they clearly didn't have a zoo to keep them in. And I also know I also want to know why they had to use a theater rather than just like basically making a zoo enclosure for him. Like why is he up on stage in the middle of the Pantages? <laughs> How did they even get him into the Pantages? Yes. <laughs> yeah. They managed to get him standing. And chained up. Like, 
there's not enough tranquilizer darts to take him down for so long, and also while having him upright. Like, the best I can think of is they had, like, a Frankenstein's laboratory kind of table that they strapped him to and then elevated it, but, you know, it's a giant one of those. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I'm just thinking about, like, what theater has a, like, even a service door large enough to get that (laughs) ape into? Like, if he's big enough... (laughs) Like, think about, like, the service bays you have for most theaters where, like, you could probably back, like, two 18-wheeler <laughs> semis into them. Like, they have those huge, like, you know, access doors for, like, a loading bay. But, like, at some point to get from even those super large doors, which I'm pretty sure King Kong is bigger than those doors would even be. Like, you have to pass through some kind of a hallway to get to the stage that makes it just architecturally impossible. <laughs> You know, what's funny to me is that I don't know what the politics of Broadway shows were like in the 30s, but I know nowadays there's very much a thing of waiting for another show to close so that you can jump in and get that theater. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so (laughs) I can just imagine, uh, like, the guy who captured King Kong sitting there waiting, just, like, hoping that, uh, you know, the Broadway Follies of 1939 will close a little (laughs) early so that he can bring in (laughs) King Kong. Well, I mean, I'm also, so we've both seen The Prestige. You remember that scene towards the uh, end of the, like at the start of the third act where Hugh Jackman is showing off his new final trick to like the theater manager and like booking the theater for a 100 show run. I'm like thinking like, okay, so when did they have this meeting? And I'm just picturing like Hugh Jackman talking it through and saying like, here, I'll show you my trick. And then it just cuts to King Kong, like lying on a big fucking slab, (laughs) like in the New York Harbor. Also, like, how did they keep him under wraps until they got him into the theater? Yeah, where were they keeping King Kong during all of this? So much of this. Oh, yeah, Carl Denham is a film uh, maker in the original King Kong. Mm-hmm. So somehow he has decided to transition to Broadway after capturing the beast. So I will confess that despite my love of cryptids and monsters and such, I have never seen a Kong, neither king nor peasant, um, except for Donkey. Um, I was about to say. Well, I mean a film. I've never seen a uh, Kong film, yeah. related film. Mm. So, like, are do do any King Kong movies, like, do they just kind of, like, cut and skip over these logistics? Like, you just see him on the boat, and the next thing you know, he's at the theater? Because there was a remake, I think, of, like, the classic King Kong with, like, Jack Black and... Uh... Yeah, there was a 1970-something remake uh, where it was King Kong in the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, where he climbed, wait for it, the World Trade Center. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, and then there was a Peter Jackson one in the 2000s, which was set back in the 30s again. Okay, yeah, so the Peter Jackson one is the one that I'm thinking about. And so, you know, I'm sure they, I haven't seen it, but I'm sure they just kind of like, you know, show the barge bringing him in and then just automatically cut to him at the theater. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the plot summary on Wikipedia for the original one, and it does go... Um, Determined to bring Kong, Kong back alive, knocks him unconscious with a gas bomb. Next paragraph, shackled in chains, Kong is taken to New York City and presented to a Broadway theater audience. So, here's my ask, is just like I love putting on those History Channel documentaries, trying to, like, analyze how the pyramids were built, I want a History Channel documentary of how King Kong got into the Pantages. <laughs> Show me the engineering minds that got that enormous ape into that tiny theater. <laughs> um, okay, uh, 
you know, it's I, I, I feel like normally whenever we get sidetracked on stuff like this, um, and when I say we, I mean I, because I'm the one driving the sidetracking, um, it's, uh, it's because we don't like the Pokemon too much, but this is actually the opposite. It's because I actually love this Pokemon. I think it actually might be my favorite of the three of the Woofo legendaries that we're going to discuss. Um, yeah. They just look like they woof. I know that cats don't typically woof, but these definitely look like woofy cats. Oh, yeah, I'll allow it. Uh, so, just a clarification point. I listened to a clip from the anime, and the pronunciations are Raiko, Entei, and Suakun. Okay, that sounds right. Which, yeah, which that's surprising me about Raiko, because I've gotten so used to Raiku. Weirdly, Suakun I've gone back and forth with over my lifetime. Like, originally I was pronouncing it Suakun, but then Suikun for a little bit, and now I guess I'm back to the original and correct pronunciation. Yeah, for me with Raiko, the reason why I always lean towards pronouncing it that way is purely because it's a little bit too close to Raichu if you pronounce it the other mm. way. And so I feel like they would at least have been careful enough not to have two Pokemon that are so distinct have such similar names. Um, and plus, that's an alternate pronunciation for the OU combination letters. Um, yeah. But overall, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of this one in particular. I mean, Entei is not without his charms, um, but you know, this guy—they also seem to have like a very like speed, power, strength type of thing going on, um, where it's like, okay, you know, this guy is your power build. Entei is just pure like buff, jacked strength, and then like you know, you got Suicune that looks like it's the fastest of the three, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it does look like the, sleek, the sleekest of them all. Mm-hmm. But I do yeah. like Raiko. Um, oh, yeah, they're all... I love them all, but, well, you know, I love all my children equally. I don't care for Joe. <laughs> uh, we'll get to Suikun in a moment on that, but Raiko is just great. Like, every element of it is too much, but in the best way. Mm-hmm. Like, none of these things should work, because you've got Tiger, but then we're going to add... Uh, a, you know, a gladiator mask, okay, and we're going to add a cape, okay, and we're mm-hmm. going to add a lightning rod tail, okay, and somehow all of these elements just work together. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I definitely, you put into the notes uh, some notes on the origin of the name in terms of uh, in terms of the Japanese, uh, well, a corruption of the Japanese name. Yeah, because uh, the, yeah, its name is a corruption of Raiju, Japanese for Thunder Beast, which again mm-hmm. makes it weird that this is pronounced Raiko and not Raiku. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I don't really have much more to say about this other than basics like it's shiny as orange and it has a yellow cape, which also just works so well. Like, I like that the more what we call basic colorization is the shiny. Whereas they went full bizarre with the regular form. Yeah, and I think this is the this is the start of where you, if you want to get a legendary shiny, you'd better save right before you encounter it and reload it like fifty times until it shows up. But I mean the the tiger the tiger flip color scheme, you know, it's just a subtle shift from the yellow to the orange, but. The fact that the cape takes on that yellow color definitely does a lot more than them necessarily needing to be, like, too out there with the color shifts. Mm. Um, and I really like the shiny a whole lot. Oh, yeah. and plus the fact that the tail gets a little bit more of, like, a silver sort of gunmetal color is very, very cool. Mm. 
God, I just realized how much of a pain in the ass shiny hunting must have been if you were trying to get the legendary beasts. Because, yeah, like, they're not just ones you can walk right up to. You have to encounter them and also make sure that you haven't saved, or like you've saved before running into them, or else I guess you're stuck with a non-shiny a non legendary beast for the rest mm -hmm. of your time. God, yeah. that's a pain. Yeah, I mean, I have Ooh. always had terrible luck with encountering shinies, which is why I'm, like, always super jealous whenever I see people like you with your Pokemon Go uh, inventories that are just stacked with shinies. Um, like, as I mean, Pokemon Go shinies are fairly easy to find. It's uh, But I have caught a few natural shinies in the main series games that I'm proud of. Yeah, for... As infrequently as I play Pokemon games these days, I have never naturally encountered a shiny in either Pokemon Go or Pokemon Let's Go. Um, but uh, let's move on, unless you have any closing thoughts, uh, you ready to move on to uh, to second Wufo? Yeah, let's get to Entei, uh, the fire one. I mean, this, I feel like in terms of giving them distinct personalities, and this is Aside from color schemes, I feel like we could... They do a good job of kind of making them feel like they're elemental types, which is kind of a hard thing to put into, you know, words other than to say that, you know, if you showed me a black and white picture of Entei and asked me to guess what type of Pokemon this is, I would probably guess some combination of fire slash normal type. Um, and I just think that that works. Like, it's just got this very, like overflowing sort of it very much feels like a creature that comes from the sort of like difficult to live in terrain of a volcano oh um, yeah like they say in the pokedex that uh when a new volcano forms entei is born uh and yeah this looks like something that emerges from the earth yeah, you can just see it, like, standing on Pride Rock, looking down at its kingdom while a volcano explodes in the background <laughs> um I mean, I don't have a whole lot to say about these guys because, like, you know, Entei actually had an entire movie uh, centered around him, which I thought was very interesting. Um, I yeah. think it was the second feature-length Pokemon movie that came out. Third, I think, because the second was all about the legendary birds and Lugia. Good point. Yeah, so... But Entei got his time in the spotlight, but I don't really... You know, and I don't... I didn't see that one, but... You know, they made several more since then, so I guess it can't be too low in the quality scale. But <laughs> I think of all three of these Pokemon, like, Entei definitely feels like the leader of the pack. Um, <laughs> like, every single picture of him just looks so noble. Oh, yeah. It looks wise. Yeah. He looks like... Like, Raikou like... kind of looks like a dummy. I love it, but it looks like a dummy. Yeah, this guy looks like what Arcanines look up to. Like, they, Arcanines ask if they can carry his books through the hallway. <laughs> um, and they're just, like, all on the disciplinary committee together, and everybody loves them. And they protect the nerds from being stuffed in lockers. Um, very good boys. Um, <laughs> but, Six foot eleven, I might add. These are big beasties. Oh, yeah. They are They're living up to the legendary type in all forms. Um, you know, one thing that I will say, I, it's interesting. The typing of this trio is interesting to me. I mean, fire feels kind of... I mean, maybe we'll get back to this at some point, but, like, you know, we've got an electric type, a fire type, and a uh, and a water type for this trio of legendaries. Um, you know, first gen, the trio of legendary birds were fire, electric, and ice. Um, you know, I feel like the other... 
I don't know about you, but I feel like this legendary trio is much less memorable than the first generation legendary trio. Part of that may be because I never actually caught all three of them in the original in my playthrough of the game, but I feel like another part of it is is because they felt a little bit like just kind of a more canine retread of the first gen's legendaries. Do you get that? Hmm. Um, well, I think we'll discuss this a bit more when we get to Suicune, but I think the thing that's interesting is in Suicune, namely, that they decide to go with water instead of ice mm -hmm. for the third member of the trio. Uh, and so there's kind of a fan theory about this. Uh, so in-game mythology says that the trio were Pokemon that died in the Burn Tower fire, mm -hmm. uh, back when the Burn Tower was not the Burn Tower, clearly. Um, and they were resurrected by the legendary Ho-Oh into their current forms, which represent the lightning that struck the tower, the fire that burned it down, mm -hmm. and the rain that put the fire out. Aww. So, the speculation in the fan community, like, it's never been clear, like, wait, were these already these three Pokemon? Were they already a Raikou, Entei, and Suicune? Or uh, were they, uh, sorry, Suicune? Uh, or were they other Pokemon? So, speculation in the fan community is that these were originally three Eevee evolutions. They were the uh, Flareon, Jolteon, and Vaporeon, hmm. because those are fire, electric, and water. And then they got elevated into this legendary status that looked like these beasts do now. Which, you know, I don't know if I buy it. I don't know if that's what uh, Creatures and Game Freak intended. But it makes sense for why these three line up with the original evolutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I love stuff like that because I think when you have some kind of lore, like true lore behind it, other than... And this is something that we run into with a lot of these Pokemon also, is, uh, and this is the case with the first round legendaries too, is you, we are told what they are, not what they were or where they came from. Because what did baby Suicune look like? Was, is it truly magic? Is it truly scientific? Like, you know, that's a good opportunity for Pokemon to really kind of bridge the realm because Pokemon has always kind of like straddled the fence between mysticism and um, and science fiction in a really interesting way. Like, you know, we toss the we toss the words around sci-fi and fantasy pretty interchangeably, but they do mean certain. But to me, they mean certain things. Where all things become scientific if you have laws and you know a set understanding by which they're being manipulated by all average people. Um, as a part of daily life, but where it becomes fantasy is where it's left to the unknown, where it's ineffable to a certain extent, whether that is, whether it is electricity um, or whatever, you know? I, so I always kind of wonder, even with the birds, like what were they when they hatched? What were they, like, did they hatch or were they just manifestations of like a, you know, sort of coalesced elemental energy? Um, are they the well, will also, of like, Arceus? Because we do cross into the mysticism aspect with these more deity-like Pokemon that we're going to encounter someday, too. Yeah, I mean, we're already starting to get into the deity-like Pokemon uh, with Lugia and Ho-Oh. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that in a sec. Yeah, uh, that's the thing. Like, the legendaries have always been a little weird to me because they are, you know, there's only one on the disc, mm -hmm. uh, on the cartridge, on the... Um, whatever other medium the game is being played on. Mm -hmm. uh, but they aren't, you know, 
it's never really clarified, like, or rather, it's treated both like these are one-of-a-kind individual rare creatures, but also there are multiples of these one-of-a-kind rare creatures. Mm-hmm. Like, simultaneously, Zapdos is created like the only one of its kind, but also there are references to, you know, say, uh, Entes are born when new volcanoes form, implying yeah. that there are multiple Entei that can exist around the world. Yeah, so I mean, so now we're going to get into some semantic talk where... Are they truly legends or are they just cryptids? Extremely rare cryptids. Because in my opinion, legendary implies that there is a legend attached to them. So for example, Bigfoot is a cryptid. All we know about Bigfoot is that he roams somewhere in the Pacific Northwest and you occasionally get a blurry picture of him. Nobody knows. There is no science attached to Bigfoot. There is no legend that he was once a man who messed with forces of nature and experimented upon himself to turn himself into this enormous thing that now wanders the woods. There is no legend attached to Bigfoot. There is just purely the speculation of existence. Cryptid. Now, a legend, it has a story attached to it. Kronos and the Greek gods, like all of them are legends and Hercules is a legend. Like all these things are legends because they have stories. We have legendary stories of their conception, of their birth, of their deeds and all that sort of thing. So that makes me think that to tie in your point about the fact that we have references within the official lore about there being multiple entes, about these being born like normal natural creatures that just happen to be exceptionally rare... It seems to me like we're, like, I'm getting carried away of expecting too much of the legendary designation when really it's just the this game's equivalent of, say, an Omega-level mutant in the X-Men. Hmm. Like, you know, all mutants are rare in their own ways. Like, there, may, there aren't too many mutants that have duplicate powers of each other um, within X-Men, but you do have that Omega-class mutant that you know it's just a little bit more special than all the others because their powers are that much more dangerous and potential not necessarily um well they clarified that recently like they mm-hmm. finally settled on a definition for omega mutants which was that this is a mutant whose ability in whatever that you know let's say magnetism for example mm-hmm. uh they are the most powerful in that field among all mutants huh. so there is no one who can do magnets better than uh, no, sorry, uh, Magneto. Yeah, it is the mag the magnet uh, man who does the magnet powers. Um, yes, I, there uh, might be other magnet men who do magnet powers, but they're not as strong as he is. This is true. I always so I always thought that Omega level was kind of like the threshold for Omega level wasn't necessarily being superlative within your power class. It was having an extent of your powers that meant that you could potentially destroy the world. Um, so Magneto is powerful enough yeah. to throw the Earth off its magnetic axis. Um, Professor Xavier could just shut down the minds of everybody on Earth if he so chose. Mm-hmm. So yeah. on and so forth. Well, they've gone with the exemplary thing as the official definition now. Gotcha. And yeah. Cyclops could blow from... a hole through the planet if he took off mm-hmm. his glasses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All these good things. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, um, so back to Entei. Well, uh, one last note on the legends and mm-hmm. mythics, I think. Like, I think with the mythics is where it gets even more complicated. I feel like those are supposed to be, like, one-of-a-kind creatures. Mm-hmm. Like, but, but we'll see. We'll see if we encounter some Pokedex entry that go, like, when a group of Celebi, and I'm like, oh, god damn it, makes sense, Game Freak. Yep. 
There, so there are more than one of these things. I did not have to go to a GameStop parking lot to get this thing. Uh, <laughs> but let's uh, let's round out the Wufos with uh, yeah. with, oh, with uh, Or so one note on Entei's shiny. Uh, so they kind of desaturate the colors a bit for Entei and make it a like smokier brown that I think really suits it. It's a good mesquite. It's a good mesquite <laughs> Entei mesquite yeah. flavor. Uh, the name comes from. Enten, which is Blazing Heat, and Kote, Emperor. So, Godspeed you, Blazing Heat Emperor. Jeez, that is a badass name. And I thought the fact that they, like, just bastardized the Thunder Beast name was pretty cool for Raiko, and then they mm. come out with this. Blazing uh, Heat Emperor. Yeah, I'll give you, I, I think, so I think we know which one the uh, sort of unloved stepchild of the group is which we're going to round out the woofos with um and yet it's the one that got its own game yeah ish i mean i think i i think that may be due to a fan response but i mean there's so much in the design of suicune that just kind of said that kind of speaks to me that it was not that i don't think they realized how popular it was going to be mm. because i love the design i love i i'm a big fan of sleek um, you know, we've talked about that from time to time, and this is the first time we have, like, my wish fulfillment in terms of a Pokemon that really looks like a deadly panther-like predator. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, Suicune is a water type. Um, so yeah, so go on about its panther-esque qualities, I guess. I mean, it's also the fact that it has that those, like, weird flourishes of, like, the floating tails that have a very, like, fate, like... And this is where your Vaporeon thing comes into play, is that it does have a very, like, vaporous quality to it, where it does more than the other two. This one definitely looks like it could be the basis for that Vaporeon theory. Um, like, the weird neck ruffle got turned into its, uh, you know, awesome rocker hair waving in the wind. <laughs> um, but, you know, I love the split tail and the, and the like, waviness of it. Um, but overall, this one just feels like so distinctly less mammalian than the other two. Um, yeah, this one feels equine, but with cat or dog-like paws. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this definitely feels like the last evolutionary stage. Like, you know, when you go to the you know, museums of natural history and you see those evolutionary trees that you know, start with a dinosaur or whatever, and then it goes up and splits and splits and splits, and then eventually you get to the, uh, you know, the modern mammals that have survived and descended down the evolutionary line. Um, so you see where, like... So it's... To me, this feels like if you were to trace a horse or a cougar back down that evolutionary line to the last stage in its evolution that was distinctly not mammalian. Huh. Or maybe, like, the first stage that was distinctly mammalian. But, like, this feels kind of like that evolutionary bridge. <laughs> I get that. I like that. That's clearly so, a feeling I'm getting. I'm not in any way trying to say that that's canon or that that's actual lore. I'm just saying it's a very cool... But it's a very cool aspect of design. Whereas these creatures... Whereas Entei and Raiko very much feel like... You know, maybe they got trapped in ice and we've gotten an Encino Man situation going on here. <laughs> um, by the way, as of time of recording, happy belated birthday to Sean Astin. <laughs> friend of the show friend of the show uh, yeah so you know, Suicune is my least favorite of the beasts because the design is too busy like I said that Raikos has so many disparate elements but they all just come together nicely and wonderfully I feel like Suicune is doing just a little too much because it's got the crystal forehead it's got the rocker hair it's got diamonds all over its body 
It's got the ribbon tail. Like, all of these design elements would be fine on their own, but there's just one thing too many of them. Mm -hmm. yeah, like, the I know big, it's uh... supposed to be kind of Aurora-inspired, but yeah, that, yeah it's what... a little too busy. What do they call the like little like flaky cookie thing that they put into gelato, Michael? Like that's traditionally served with a cup of gelato. Oh, huh. Um, I'm not sure. Well, like the he's... little crispy cookie thing. Well, whatever it's called, that flaky cookie, he's wearing one on his forehead. So, <laughs> <laughs> so shout out that to our Italian listeners dipped. who might be able to give us that information. But <laughs> that's been dipped in a blue chocolate or something. Oh man, um, but. Uh, I don't have any other thoughts on these guys. I mean, I'm a big fan of all of their designs, and I think that all of their designs are very reflective. But, you know, it is... I guess I will agree with you that Suicoon has a little bit too much going on. And I feel like... I don't know. Maybe they were just kind of experimenting once, but um, water types so often in Pokemon go for the less is more approach that I generally recommend. And I feel like this time they decided, you know what, let's have a fancy water type. Let's give him some accoutrements because, like, you know, run through the, you know, 80 or so water types mentally real quick and just can you come up with a water type that feels like it's too busy other than this one? You mean up to this point at least? Yeah, up to this point. Yeah, I think everything up to this point has been, like, here's a fish that we've changed. Here's yeah. a duck. Here's uh, a squid. Yeah, Again, almost... everything. Yeah, like Blastoise is probably the busiest, I'd say, so far. Yeah, almost sinfully minimalist. Yeah, like our complaints about Seal and Dugong, for example, were that they are literally just amorphous blobs. So, I mean, I feel like this is the time where they <laughs> kind of like, almost like they were kind of playing a long con, where all of the water types have been so simplistic and blobular that now you get to Sudokun and it's like, oh, you want a little bit of fancy boy? How do you feel about it now? <laughs> Um, you like donuts? How about all the donuts in the world? And I'll at least say that maybe Subakun could do with, like, one less accoutrement, but, and I would probably maybe reduce the gelato chip on its head. Um, I feel like that's kind of unnecessary. Like, that thing's just gotta hit the, just bang into the top of doorways all day, <laughs> every day. Yeah, um, I think the thing that bugs me about the gelato chip, as we're now officially referring to it, <laughs> Uh, is that it breaks with the established um, you know, helmety patterns that mm -hmm. the other two guys had? Yeah, like that's its helmet. Um, so I don't know. Maybe give it just like match it up with the other two. Don't have it feel. And I guess that may be why I kind of automatically feel like it's the stepchild of the trio, as opposed to you know being a unified member of the group. Mm. Yeah. Um, this one doesn't look fluffy. The other two look fluffy. No, this one this one looks like it's got like very, very short fur that is just constantly a little bit wet. Um, <laughs> Ew, wet dog. Alright, so uh, yeah. any closing well, thoughts on the Woofos? Uh, well, we need to talk about Crystal version for a little bit mm. when we're talking this weekend. Uh, so, Crystal was the second time we'd ever gotten a third version of the game. Well, technically fourth time, but or third time rather, but we don't really think of the Japanese blue as a third version of the game mm -hmm. if you follow because yellow was the first time that they made a version of a um, complementary version of a Pokemon game that changed up parts of the storyline and parts of the gameplay uh, so they did that again with crystal version as the companion piece to gold and silver 
where it's practically the same game, but with some changes like you could play as a female trainer for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, but more importantly, there was a whole subplot devoted to Suicune. Uh, Suicune, wow, this is... I'm glad we're going to be done with these three in a moment, because... <laughs> the, yeah. Until we get to Mon Appetit, at least. Uh, true. Yeah, uh, Suicune, where you saw him throughout the story, and then you finally have a standard battle with him late in the game, rather than just trying to hunt him all over the world map. Uh, so while I can't say why this one of the three was elevated to plot importance, it's interesting to note that this is the first time that a legendary Pokemon is actually integrated into the narrative and not just an optional dungeon or side quest. Because mm -hmm. even Lugia and Ho-Oh, they don't really come up as part of the plot. Like, they're not important to catch in this game for any other reason than to have them. Mm -hmm. Whereas every legendary from this point on, or at least every box legendary after this generation, will be key to the plot of the gameplay. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I didn't play Pokemon Crystal. That was during my, uh, my that was right about where my interlude started. I think I had Pokemon Ruby, and that was like I played a little bit of it and then never got too far into it, um, but. Yeah, it is very strange. I would love I would love to know why Suicune ended up being elevated to that bit of importance. Maybe it was like a lightning in a bottle situation where at the time it was being considered more popular than it really was. Hmm. Um, it could be, you know what it could be? Well, did it appear in the, uh, in the Entei movie that we discussed? I don't know. I haven't seen, I've only seen the first movie, so oh, okay. I don't know. Yeah. I was about to say, uh, maybe it might just be that kids and test audiences just tested way better with Suicune or something like that, or maybe like maybe. toys from the movie or something like that. Huh. I mean, my guess is as simple as they thought, we need to do something else that is gem-related. Suicune's got what looks like a crystal on its head. Mm -hmm. That works. Um, yeah, and my last note is that the shiny is kind of disappointing because it's just a bluer Suicune. Yeah, that, so this is where, this ties back to my original point about the fact that there's a lot of evidence that Suicune is not as beloved, but, or at least on the outset of its conception, is my usual argument about the shiny being super boring and, you know, just kind of its weird sort of like, you know, it just feels like kind of an afterthought of a design compared to the other two, um, where it doesn't quite match up as well. Um, but then, like I said, like, it seems like there must have been some market data, whether from test audiences or toy sales or something that Nintendo and Game Freak got a hold of that made them realize, oh, it's actually the blue one that's the most popular. All right, let's swap out the models. I guess they're going on a Suicune quest in Crystal. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just did a control F and replace all. <laughs> it's, oh, would the were so simple. I do like, though, I think Blue-Akun, uh, the shiny, as I'll dub it, uh, looks pretty good. Like, it's a good combination. Like, it's a dark blue tail, and that, or and cape, whatever we're calling it. So, you know, it's not great compared to the original version, but it's, you know, it's not half bad. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so let's get to my, I remember this being my favorite Pokemon from the uh from this generation oh these are fun boys yes yeah they get uh especially the third stage evolution gets the title of honorary legendary um yeah. in my well, book I mean, it's, it's true in that these are the pseudo legendary for this generation because they've got like 
near legendary level stats, and they're at the end of the decks. Yeah, so, so this that's kind of is the qualifier for the pseudo legendary. Yeah, so again, speaking back to the sort of pattern, uh, sort of a mirror thing that they did between gold and silver versus red and blue, where, you know, you have the three legendaries that I mentioned, three legendary birds, three legendary woofos, and, you know, all similar types. Um, what you have in the Tyranitar line is a three-stage line that is relatively difficult to get. Um, oh, God, yeah. But... Yeah, Sorry, I'll let you finish your thought. Well, it's, yeah, it's pretty much the equivalent of the Dratini line um, to get to a Dragonite, um, where, although I don't think that you needed a stone to evolve to a Tyranitar, but... Um, well, you didn't need one to evolve to a Dragonite either. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, you just but, had to get to level 55. Yeah, so, but I mean, Tyranitar is very much like Dragonite, like, so powerful that it might as well be a legendary, but... You know, so this kind of calls into question, like, okay, is it not a legendary, quote-unquote, even though it has every other, you know, objective metric of a legendary? Is it not a legendary because it has pre-evolutionary stages or because it's relatively more common than the legendaries in the world? Well, I, like, think, I think the defined term for what makes a legendary Pokemon requires there to be only one available, mm -hmm. and... Like, well, it's a multi-factored thing. It's one, only one on disc. Uh, there are certain stat levels that it has to meet. Maybe some mythology connected to it within the games. Um, and, yeah, like, it's got a harder catch rate. Like, those are the big qualifiers for a legendary, I believe. Because, mm -hmm. yes, there are some Pokemon that only exist one on a cartridge. Like, uh, there's only one far-fetched in red and blue that you get from a trade. But... Yeah. By no means is far-fetched a legendary Pokemon. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so we've discussed that before. Because, I mean, I think I brought up that comic, I forget who it's by, of a guy who's just obsessively trading every Pokemon he can to get as many pincers as he can. And then dumps <laughs> all of them but one into a furnace. Um, terrible, terrible. Extremely yeah. dark. Yeah. Um, um, but the thing with the Larvitar line and the Dratini line and other lines we'll see down the line is that they <laughs> down the line uh, is that they are quote unquote pseudo legendaries according to the fan base because they do have uh, like legendary near legendary levels in their statistics and their stats, but uh, they are far more commonly available than a legendary Pokemon in that you could have a team of Larvitar on your game, whereas you couldn't do that by yourself trying to get a team of Rikos. Yeah, I mean, so one thing I will say about the design is first off, not only did they make Larvitar super cute. Um, oh, uh, if I could just interject with the typing for one moment. Sure. Great. Yeah, uh, so Larvitar and Pupitar <coughs> are rock and ground. Uh, and then when they evolve into Tyranitar, they lose that ground type and pick up the dark type. So it's rock and dark, uh, and that is a unique type combo. We haven't seen that before, and we will not be seeing that ever again, at least as of time of recording. Yeah, and especially, I remember I had a cousin who was really into the sort of science aspects of, po of Pokemon games and stuff like that, in terms of like, and I just remember him telling me that Tyranitar A, the stats are just insane, um, but then B, the typing also makes him 
very unlikely to be weak to anything that the game can throw at you, hmm. um, or at least truly weak, like possibly yeah. well, a. It does have one massive disadvantage, though, mm -hmm. in that being rock slash dark, uh, it's four times weak to fighting. Yeah, so I mean, who uses fighting types anyway? You know, I like to keep a fighter these days. But yeah. But, but yeah, sick him a champ on this guy. Oh yeah, of all things. Let's just have him do <laughs> let's just have him do the hard slap. But yeah, so back to Larvitar. Um <laughs> the e they slap. made they managed to make Larvitar actually cute, and they did so by not making him look like a larva at all. Because <laughs> larva are gross. Um if anybody doesn't know what larvae look like, they're literally just maggots. Like, just picture writhing, gooey, squishy-looking maggots. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, lo I love the design across the board. I like the little, like, diamond accents. It's not overdone. Um, you know, overall, I just think this is a really great line. Um, and we're not even going to get mad at the fact that we have yet another Pokemon with a cocoon mid-stage evolution. <laughs> Well, let's uh, address the 980-foot-tall lizard in the room here. Mm -hmm. This is Godzilla. This line is Godzilla. Yeah. Um, so, Tyranitar is six feet tall. So, I do want to point out that it is... We're, we have lots of love for, obviously, the first and third stage evolution of this. But now I'm really going to go in onto the cocoon stage. Because what is Tyranitar that it should have a cocoon or chrysalis state? Like, what yeah. creature does that mimic? There are no lizards, no mammals, nothing of the sort that should have a cocoon stage and turn out this big and not be a bug type. Bugs and fungi, I think, are the only creatures on Earth that do some kind of a, you know, chrysalis or, like, hibernative state. Um, and for this guy to have that just feels really weirdly out of place. Um, yeah, at least for it not to be a bug type. Yeah, it's very weird that we have a clear... Like, you can see the relationship between mm -hmm. all three Pokemon. Like, you can see on Tyranitar's, you know, chest area how that very much looks like the Pupitar. Mm -hmm. However, it is weird that we have, you know, the basic form and the second evolution looks so much alike, and then you have this weird uh, Edgelord Metapod in between. Edgelord Metapod, that is 110% correct. Even with the dark eyeshadow, too. I just noticed that. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's perfect. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just weird that they are intentionally invoking insect life cycle uh, biology with a name like Larvitar when there's nothing else about these Pokemon that invoke that or speak to that, and then they have this second typing. So I wonder if they aren't doing that just to justify the second typing, but then in that case, why have the Pupitar state at all? Why not yeah. make it a two-stage, extremely annoying Larvitar evolves into Tyranitar at some insane level? Um, what is the level that they evolve at, actually, come to think of it? Um, uh, 55. It's... 30 and 55. So yeah. Larvitar turns to Cupitar at 30 and then Tyranitar at 55. Yeah, so it just feels kind of ham-fisted in. Um, and especially because Tyranitar's name doesn't have anything like that. It's like, just change Larvitar's name and then, booms cut Pupitar out so that you're not doing the larva, pupae, and then, you know, Tyrannosaurus yeah. state. Um, like, it makes it weirder that the first two stages are rock slash ground, which mm -hmm. we've seen so many times already. 
when it would make more sense for it to be rock bug. And then it'd just go, it loses the bug type, it gets evil and becomes dark type. So yeah, mm -hmm. like it should be rock bug into rock dark. Yeah. And then also, how big is a pupitar? Pupit so, okay. So now here's the other thing about the cocoon that's bothering me. Is that this cocoon is four feet tall, but out of this cocoon, like a TARDIS, comes a <laughs> six plus foot tall monster. Six foot seven. Thank you. There is something curled. There is a there is a six foot seven tyranitar curled up in that four foot tall cocoon. I mean, my my fan theory here, I guess, is that maybe the you can see that I'm reaching for it as I'm thinking mm -hmm. about this. Uh, based on how the chest of Tyranitar looks so much like Pupitar, maybe it just starts emerging its legs and tail and other things from the Pupitar shell, and the shell becomes part of the body or something. Okay, okay. Yeah. Similar to that, I think that Tyranitar are not born, they are found, and that a Pupitar then installs itself like a little living USB plug. <laughs> and then downloads its consciousness into a Tyranitar that it then commands like a mech and that you are seeing that USB dongle in its chest. That's the only Brad way this makes sense it. to me, Michael. That's the only way this makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. um, so, moving back a bit about how hard to find these guys are, mm -hmm. they are easier to find than Bertini was in... Gen 1, but only barely, because Bertini was that whole process of going fishing and safari zone, hoping to find one, and then having to do the pain-in-the-ass safari zone game of, okay, do I throw bait? Do I throw a ball? Do I throw a rock? Am I going to scare it off? Uh, yeah. Which just sucked so mm -hmm. hard. Um, Larvitar, on the other hand, you don't find it until the 11th hour. It's at Mount Silver, which is the last area of the game. So if you saw this monster early on in the hype cycle for gold and silver, you were like, ooh, can't wait to add that to my team. <laughs> You're out of luck, kid. Yep. I feel like that isn't the first time we've had this done to us where a purposely cool Pokemon was kept to the very end. Um, you know, we've talked this entire generation about how the dark types... Uh, were largely kept towards the end of the game, uh, even yeah. though they were obviously advertised as, like, the cool new thing. Um, I think the only dark type you can encounter in Johto is uh, Umbreon, and that's only by evolving Eevee. Yeah, only if you happen to have the Brady Game strategy guide that told you how to get an Umbreon. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think this is one of those cases where... Well, I mean, I feel like a Tyranitar would be interesting to have early on. Like, you don't want to give it to the player too early because then it just becomes a monster. Um, yeah. And, you know, you stomp through the last three or four uh, gyms just putting that at the front of your line, no matter what. Um, but I also think that, like, you know, you're really forcing us to create an, a concept of end game content or post game content by putting this so late in the game. 
Like, yeah. by the time you find this, if you want to evolve a Larvitar into a Tyranitar, there is nothing left for you to do in the game as far as official content is concerned. So you're literally just walking in circles, just trying to, like, grind XP. That's literally the only thing that was left to do in the game at this point, pretty much. Yeah, especially since this one requires so much grind, because it's level 55 to evolve mm -hmm. to the full stage. Yeah. Yeah, and so I definitely remember, I think this is where that sense of fatigue came in, is, like, I did evolve a Tyranitar. And I just remember thinking, like, but what did I evolve it for? <laughs> like, there's nothing <laughs> left to do in the game. I can beat, I can go and beat Red up at Mount Silver one or two more times, but, like, what good is that doing me, really? Mm. Um, yeah. I beat him harder than the last time I beat him. <laughs> like, they fixed this in Heart Gold and Soul Silver uh, because there's a new Safari Zone with much better uh, gameplay. Mm -hmm. uh, and initially, it's... Uh, Actually, I'm not sure when you can get it, but you can get a Larvitar at that Safari Zone earlier on in the game. And so I was able to use a Tyranitar in my final team, I think, uh, when playing Heart Gold and Soul Silver, or Heart Gold the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, like it showed up at a, at a reasonable point in the narrative where I was able to <laughs> actually use it rather than just be like, oh, hey. You just arrived. Like, this is a Pokemon that shows up to the party at, like, 12.50. Walks in with a case of natty ice and just says, let's go! And the party goes for three more hours because it walked in the door. <laughs> but no one really wants to be there at that point. No, exactly. But people are still just digging the energy. So they stick mm. around to see what's up a little bit. Mm. Um, all right. Uh, I've, that's all I've got to say about Tyranitar. I mean, I'm, aside from the baffling mid-stage evolution that kind of throws the whole larger family into question i you know much love for tyranitar tyranitar is a real one yeah it's godzilla it's great yep um yeah just a couple notes i want to share with you what has to be the first patently false pokedex entry i've ever encountered hmm. uh this is one that's used several times for tyranitar its body can't be harmed by any sort of attack so it is very eager to make challenges against enemies I have knocked out Tyranitars numerous times in Pokemon games. Yeah. I know it can take damage. I know that it faints. We literally just touched on the fact that it is not just weak, it is quadruple weak to fighting type. So literally any fighting type it runs into in the wild is going to just drop it with a single, like, double slap or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, so just, I think double slap's a normal move, but yes, exactly. Like, you do one seismic toss, this boy goes down. Yeah, this is a lie, Pokedex. How dare you turn your Pokedex into a den of lies? I mean, I'm thinking about the fact that, like, okay, let's consider that any Tyranitar that exists in the wild are level 55. I think that when they say that it can't be hurt, I think they're speaking in a relative system where when that level 55 Tyranitar wanders down from Mount Silver and runs into a level 5 Pikachu <laughs> at the bottom of the hill, even if that Pikachu uses Tackle, it's doing 1 HP of damage, and the Tyranitar is just like, that didn't hurt, and then yeah. just backhands that Pikachu. Yes, um, we joke that the Pokedex is written by 12-year-olds who have been sent out by quote-unquote professors. Uh, and I'm convinced this is one of those cases where the 12-year-old sent a ratatat uh, out, or ratata, or whatever, you know, a mm -hmm. rat, sent a rat to fight a Tyranitar, and, yeah, nothing happened. <laughs> so the kid wrote down, wow, its body can't be harmed by anything! 
just yeah that's what you get for unpaid internships um, yeah so uh, uh, more pokedex weirdness uh pupitar is described as quote uh in ultra sun it's described as quote can't wait to evolve so even it hates itself which really does add to the moody teen vibe of it uh and finally let's talk shinies so uh weird thing here larvitar originally was a brighter green with then a pale green shiny but every game has flipped that since so mm. now your basic larvitar is kind of pale and then it turns into this bright green when it is a shiny uh Pupitar is very weird because it's a purple shiny. And then Titar, eh, kind of dull. It's sand colored. It works, but it's not exciting. Like, if you had given me, well, given that the purple color, mm -hmm. that would have been un unstoppable. Yeah, I, I'm with you 110%. Um, my love for Tyranitar overflows. Uh, do we want to move on to the other trio of true legendaries? Yes, I'm ready. All right, I'll let you kick it off. Uh, so I my memory apparently was foggy because I think I mentioned earlier in the episode that I thought that it was a version exclusi exclusivity of between Lugia and Ho-Oh, but you actually correct me in the notes, so if you would, yeah, please. there's it's a twist. It's a twist. So Lugia is a psychic and flying type, uh, and yeah, this is the box mascot time. Uh, so Lugia was the box mascot of silver. Ho-Oh was the box mascot for gold. Now here's where it gets tricky. So in future games, it's always uh, like you see uh, Kyogre on blue, on a, sorry, uh, on Sapphire, and yeah, that is the legendary for that game. You will not encounter Groudon. However, in uh, Gold and Silver, you could get both on the same cartridge, but with a twist. The box mascot will be the first one of these two that you can encounter, and it'll be weaker, which is odd to me that it's the weaker one is the box mascot. So, in gold, you encounter Ho-Oh halfway through uh, at level 40, and then Lugia becomes available later in the game at level, at level 70, and then it's flipped in silver, obviously. So, you get uh, Lugia early on at 40, Ho-Oh at 70 later on. Um, yeah, so I like that they're both available in this. That it isn't a thing where you're going to have to ask someone to give you their legendary if you want to have every Pokemon. Yeah, I mean, I think that with regards to the placement, I think that they knew that, okay, whichever box you're choosing, that's the Pokemon that you most want to actually play as in the game. Hmm. Um, and I think that they are, by putting the other one later... And at a higher level, they are tacitly acknowledging, like, yeah, we know there's not a lot left in the game at this point, um, so we're just going to give you the other one at a much higher level so that you don't have to grind it up to level 70, because they probably assume that by that point you've gotten your Lugia naturally up to level 65 by having it in your team. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think also there might be an element of trying to maintain the surprise of going to Kanto mm -hmm. uh, by having it be like, oh, yeah, well you have reached you're towards the end of the main campaign here in Johto so this is when you get access to the box legendary like you would with Mewtwo mm -hmm. in a red blue and yellow but surprise there's a whole another half of the game and also there's another legendary yep I um I mean I like it and I, I the one thing that these conversations always kind of bring to light is the fact that 
we have to recalibrate how we talk about these video games and their planning and their structure to a certain extent because of the fact that we are talking about games outside of a context that we've come to accept, which is that once these games shipped, there were no changes being made to them. Like, yeah. there was no DLC, there were no patches, there were no, like, updates or anything like that. These games shipped as a complete and final product. Yeah, um, the closest you might get is that they'd release it again later with a bug removed. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. yeah, like, this game plays the same... Well, actually, not quite. I would say this game plays the same today as it did in 2001, ex- or, mm-hmm. sorry, in uh, 99, except, I think the batteries that were inside the cart to maintain the clock yeah. have probably yeah. all died by now. Oh yeah. They um so but the one thing that I will point out, like, you know, while I realize that we do have to kind of recalibrate and recognize that okay, it's all well and good for me to say, well, lack of post game content. It's like, well, yeah, DLC didn't exist back then, but we did have games with a concept of a post game like post game play and content and sort of like an experience for the player that went beyond just getting to the finish line. Um, the best example of that is Super Mario Brothers, uh, or Super Mario World, sorry, on the SNES, which precedes this game by like a nearly a decade. Um, you know, you had your Super Mario World, you had your straight line to get to the princess and rescue her from Bowser, but then you had secret paths, you had the Star World post... Like, I consider all of that to be post-game content. If you're just yeah. doing what Pokemon is doing and going along a straight line to get to the end of the plot, then you have all this other stuff you can find. You know, yeah. the game explicitly well, tells you you're only 45% done. <laughs> yeah, like, I think this Pokemon game, Gold and Silver, will always be the best ones in terms of post-game mm-hmm. because they really set it up, like okay, here's the Elite Four, this is the end of your quest, but then after credits roll, which, you know, credit roll is what we define as the beginning of post-game, oh, hey, we're gonna send you on a boat to Kanto, and you can face all of the gym leaders from the previous games, and also there's a whole mess of other activities to do over there. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like, no Pokemon game since has come close to that with the whole aspect of here is act two of the show that you didn't realize was a two-act show. Yeah, and I really liked revisiting the original gyms and seeing all the gym leaders, you know, one year later, a little bit older, a little bit wiser. Sabrina definitely had a great glow-up, I thought. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah. uh, I was a Lugia silver boy, as I recall. Um, Lugia... So let's get into Lugia. Um, Yeah. The design feels kind of like what I said about, you know, being able to trace the evolutionary line and this and like, you know, being the last line before you become truly mammalian. Lugia feels like the last line of like a bird dinosaur evolution um, before they stop being a dinosaur by like true classification and and start start getting real. And start getting real and start being an actual bird. Um, because there are, because like, there is, there are like little parts of its design that I like. You know, I think it's a very like interesting bird. But again, I am always disappointed when they just literally do like the paunchy body thing that they do with like Charizard and so many other Pokemon. Mm, I don't know why dress. they felt the Yeah, I don't know why they felt the need to give it like a little, little tum-tum, but... I also do like the fact that, like, it has all these aspects, like, you know, the back spines, the very angry uh, Uncle Leo eyebrows on its face. (laughs) 
There was a there was a deep cut for you. <laughs> that's, that's good. good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, like I like that this one looks weird. However, mm-hmm. and I say this as someone who played silver primarily out of the two because I saved up my allowance and got both versions so I could trade with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so of the two, I mean, sorry, of a yeah about Lugia, like it's a weird design and it really does oscillate between being great and completely goofy depending on the angle you're looking at from mm-hmm. or the art style because this thing is 17 feet tall like this would be terrifying to encounter in real life no matter how goofy it's looking but 17 feet fall 17 to put it into context because i always like having like a little bit of a relation relational <laughs> picture it's easy to say 17 feet but i want you to picture yourself in your third story room if you are in on the third floor of a building and this creature being able to poke its head through the window at you. Like King Kong. Pretty much. Um, so, yeah, it's just... Tell uh, me about the shiny, Michael. Well, I wouldn't... Actually, I wouldn't say third story because, like, if yeah, you're I'm, right. I'm 5'11 and there's still several feet between me and the ceiling... Mm-hmm. So, so second story yeah, window. But you're still story. not on the ground floor, and this thing is able to poke its head right through the window at you and like yes, steal terrifying. your ice cream cone. Yeah, this is. I need to see how tall is a Macy's Parade balloon. <laughs> I'd imagine, like, depending on the balloon, like somewhere in the neighborhood of like seventy to eighty feet, because of like just relationally to how many people have to pull those balloons along. Okay, it's yeah, like have they is... out, have they outlawed that yet? The balloons? Yeah. No. No, that's a that's a thing. Okay, so just I decided to use Pikachu as a metric fittingly. Uh, the Pikachu balloon measures in at sixty-five feet long, thirty feet tall, and thirty-eight thirty point eight feet wide. Dang. So okay, that gives us a comparison for Lugia. Lugia is a tiny thing compared to this Pikachu balloon. Anyhow, uh, enough with balloon talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, like depending on how it's drawn how it's angled it either looks great and terrifying or just kind of dumb and goofy Mm -hmm. this thing has hand wings it has fingers on its wings yeah and it's also the rare cartoon that actually has uh has five fingers um I think that the yeah, simplicity yeah. of the I think that it's mainly due to the simplicity of the design like this is a very this is very unique especially compared to all the other legendaries we are talking about today. It is a three color palette um, with very little flourishes on the design. Um, oh, that's yeah. why the few flourishes that there are like the stegosaurus thing on the tail um, the thagomizer. Yes, I was just about to bring up that uh, that Far Side cartoon. Yes. The fact that he invented that word in a cartoon, and scientists that had not named the Stegosaurus spines on the tail started calling it the Thagomizer because of that cartoon. Yeah, because um, they realized that yeah, it works so well, and they don't have a name. Yeah, but you know, like if you look at the picture of Lugia that they use on Bulbapedia, that can mm-hmm. either be a monster that's about to fire like a nuclear beam from its mouth or it's about to just yell hey i'm here this thing definitely looks like it speaks with like a hard brooklyn accent and like (laughs) it was an extra that had a scene in goodfellas Um, definitely definitely looks like it says hey what are you doing with those people get over here type of thing (laughs) 
Come say hi to Uncle Lugia. Especially the way it's constantly flexing its fingers. It just has a very good fellow's look. Hey! Karen, what are you doing? <laughs> um, uh, I'm a big fan yeah. of the shiny, though. This is the first time in a very long time I can earnestly say that. Wow, okay. So, I think the ba you were completely right about the colors of this thing being gray. The shiny, though, takes it to another level because it is a red tint instead of a blue. And, yeah, like, it just looks nice. Yeah, we go from a booberry to a frankenberry, and it works extremely well. I love my strawberry shiny boy. Um... And yeah, I just think overall it's great. Um, and also yeah. because they didn't go the cliche, because they didn't do the cliche blue to purple. Like, thank God. Yeah. Although, although it would have been cool actually if they had swapped the palette around, like kept the same palette but just swapped the colors, made it like largely that darker purple with white accents um, on the tail and the vagamizer. Well, they've got the... There is the Shadow Lugia that was in uh, the GameCube game Pokemon XD Gale of Darkness, which I never played, but if you look up Shadow Lugia, you'll see... Oh, yeah, that that's they, more or less what I'm suggesting, yeah. Yeah. They went with kind of the negative, the photo-negative version. Oh, man, Shadow Lugia is something crazy. Um, yeah, here's the thing. Shadow Lugia, I think it's impossible to make that look goofy, whereas Base Lugia will always have just an element of, you know, Uncle Tony from the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say that Shadow Lugia just looks like uh, Toothless from How to Train Your, Your Dragon. This checks out. Yeah. It's yeah. not a very, it's not a very, like, insightful thing. It's just, that is what it looks like. Just straight yeah. up looks like Toothless. Um, this, on a note to that, it is interesting to me that this isn't a dragon. That's yeah. psychic and flying, which, okay, yeah, psychic, that's cool. Uh but dragon should be there instead of flying, I think. Yeah, and I don't know how much any of us like really want like we're beaten down game freak for a uh, for a psychic flying type like, but we got well, it. We already got one in this gen with Natu and Zatu. Mm-hmm. So there we go. So that's kind yeah. of that's kind of where I'm coming from. It's like, all right, yeah. thanks for thanks for another psychic flying. I was, I mean, that's kind of why I, I guess that's also kind of why I brought up the sort of mirror imaging of the Wufo legendaries is the fact that we already have not only Pokemon of these types, but also like because they're all single type, um, we also already have legendaries with most of these typings. Yeah. Um, you know, especially with the Thunder and the. Uh, and the fire, like, this is a redundant legendary. There's no well, way to we'll say Well, we'll get it. to that redundancy with the next one. But first, I have to talk to you about the Lugia PT Cruiser. Oh, please. Yes. Long before... <laughs> long before Post Malone was recording Hootie and the Blowfish covers to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Pokemon, for some reason, uh, to celebrate or promote Gold and Silver they decked out a PT Cruiser to look like Lugia. And by look like, I mean they included a tail. Uh, I'm going to send you a photo of this thing, Baloo, in case you haven't oh, seen I'm it. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. Yes. It has a tail. First off, it has a tail that looks like a definite parallel parking hazard. Oh. Um, I wasn't it, even thinking that. I was thinking, you're behind this thing on the road, it suddenly has to break, and then you get impaled by the Lugia tail. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely... The other problem... Well, so here's the thing, is that I think somebody pointed that out in the design of the tail. 
And the solution they had was, well, we should just have the tail point upward more so it looks like your car has a boner. <laughs> yeah, it's... Like, I hate everything about this. And also the fact that, like, I feel like the PT Cruiser has become, like, such a punchline of a vehicle as well. The PT Cruiser is a weird car because it very much seems like a half-assed retro-futuristic car. Mm-hmm. Because it's got the wood paneling, which I find so fun. Like, the faux wood paneling, which I find so funny. Yeah, I don't. I have never known anybody who has even driven a PT Cruiser. Like, I see them around every now and then, but at this point they've kind of become like the DeLorean of our generation, where, like, you occasionally see them and they're kind of like seeing, you know, a unicorn out in the wild or something like that. Like, I don't know how else to put it, but they have, like, this very weird sort of niche... Like, they're not respected, that's for damn sure, but they definitely have, like, they definitely have a place in the cultural zeitgeist. I feel like DeLoreans are at least respected because they had Back to the Future, and they have mm. the goal wing thing, which is so impractical, but different at least. That's true. Whereas the PT Cruiser just, like, this is a cartoon car. I mean, I feel, well, so the PT Cruiser does appear prominently in one legendary show, Breaking Bad. Um, it is the car that they get for Walt Jr., like, after Walt tries to buy his son uh, a Dodge Charger or something insane like that, and then Skyler, like, double-checks him and is like, you can't be flaunting this money around. Yeah. He gets Walt a PT Cruiser that he then later on, like, just a few months later in the show's timeline, like, replaces with a Dodge, a Dodge Charger again. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, really... I sympathize... I love Hank, but really and truly, it is kind of impressive that he did not notice any of that because the other thing is, is that the show is happening on such a condensed timeline like for us it was over six years but yeah in the theming of the show everything that we see up until walt runs away takes place in just the span of a year oh yeah because we see his 50th birthday at the beginning and then we see his 51st in the next to last season yeah and then a year passes until he comes back from the sort of end of uh season five until the end of like the very end of the show yeah. um but, yeah, that's the crazy thing, is that over the course of a year, this guy goes from being broke and unable to pay for cancer treatments to suddenly buying and selling multiple cars, <laughs> opening a, wa a car wash. And, like, I know it's hard to, like, kind of quantify this, but, like, it is really funny to me when you put the timeline in that and Hank not putting any of that together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not only in the span of that year did he suddenly pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for his own medical treatment, buy a car wash, buy his family multiple cars... He also paid for Hank's medical bills, too. Yep. Well, no, wait. Um, Gus covered Hank's bills, I think. No, no, no. Gus just covered the hospital stay. Walt and oh, okay. Skyler ended up... That was when Skyler found out about about Walt, and so she made, she made him do the whole fake gambling story and had him pay for his physical therapy. Yeah, um, so... Okay. Gus just paid for the hospital stay for the initial treatment. Um, anyway. Uh, I mean, just, I feel like Hank could justify it in his brain thing, like, Okay, so my, you know, my brother-in-law, who I guess is smart, uh, knows how to play uh, poker well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yes. Yeah, that is Anyhow. still an astonishing change of fortunes for somebody who literally two months ago was working two jobs and barely paying bills even with that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. the point uh, is how were you radicalized? I was radicalized by the first season of Breaking Bad. <laughs> I was radicalized by worrying about getting impaled by the Lugia PT Cruiser. 
Honey, don't worry. The Lugia truck, the Lugia PT Cruiser can't hurt you. <laughs> it isn't real. It isn't real. Yeah. So, it's yeah, somewhere so out there. There were five of those, apparently. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. Does Ho At least one have... private collector owns one. All right. Does Ho O have a, like, Volkswagen Jetta associated with it? <laughs> <laughs> this is Jay Leno's garage. We're looking at the Ho Volkswagen Jetta. Oh, man. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you mentioned redundancy about legendaries. Ho-O, stop me if you've heard this one, mm-hmm. is a legendary Pokemon. Mm-hmm. It is a bird, mm-hmm. and its typing is fire slash flying. I want to point out that... Something that has never happened before. Never had a legendary bird that was fire and flying before. I mean, I appreciate the bit, but I've just got to say, this fucking thing just literally looks like... They started with an outline of Moltres and then just changed it to like a little bit more of an Azteca flavor. Like, <laughs> it's got the colors of the Mexican flag on it. It's got like the cool like coxswain. Overall, I'm a fan of the design. But yeah, when you put when you put together the fact that this is just clearly like another just change three elements plagiarism of their own design from just one generation ago, yeah. I I can't get behind it. I, I'm trying to think like what else it should be. I feel like it would have been cool if they'd done like a light dark dichotomy. I feel like they also left a lot on the table in terms of all these legendaries. They know that this generate the big like feature that has been advertised for this generation is the fact that they have steel and dark types. And only one of the Pokemon we were discussing today has the dark typing and it's a dual type. Um, neither of the legend, none of the true legendaries incorporate it. Um, and they don't even go with like, even a like lazy dichotomy of the fact that like, okay, let's make Lugia at least psychic flying. And then thus let us make Ho-Oh a dark flying. Um, yeah. But I feel like yeah, that sort of dualistic sort of dichotomy becomes more of a feature in later legendary typings, um, which we'll get to down the line, but... You know, I feel like that sort of adversarial thing is more of a theme later. Yeah, it's weird. It does seem like they... I think I mentioned this before. They really pulled their punches with the dark and steel types. Like, they talked about them being a new feature. We were mm-hmm. adding two types. That's new and exciting. But they didn't really do anything with them. Like, they... I mean, they did things with them, clearly. They gave them prominent roles, but... Uh, like, they made them so hard to get. Like, almost all the dark types are in Kanto. Mm-hmm. All the steel you had to really work your way for. You had to either use an item or you had to, you know, like, I'll headbutt this tree to get this Pokemon, which then evolves into a steel type. Mm. Yeah. No, it's weird. There's a lot. Like, I love gold and silver, but there's a lot of odd questions about the thought process of the games. Namely, like, how they made how they work the biodiversity of the lyrical regions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't have a whole lot to say about Ho-O. I mean, you pretty much touched on it in the fact that this is pretty much just carpet, like a near-carbon copy plagiarism of their own design from just 100 Pokemon ago in the Pokedex. Um, and yeah. I just don't think... Yeah, I think it's... I like the colors. I think it's, like, good color set and all that. Yeah, um, but the colors are great. Yeah, like, just... I think... I like this better than Moltres because it is more interesting, mm-hmm. and I do have to wonder about, you know, what was conceived first, if only because Ho-Oh does show up in the first episode of the anime. Yeah. 
and that is probably its major claim to fame. Um, I will say that the first episode of the anime has it looking completely solid gold, which is just the shiniest of all shiny versions. Um, but yeah, because I think the show... Yeah, I think it took multiple years before the show finally confirmed that that was a Ho-Oh that Ash saw in the first episode. Yeah. Um, I remember, like, the first three episodes set up that moment as such a mystery that felt like it was going to be the core of the show. And then just quietly forgot about it for years. And I think they offhandedly mentioned, like, oh, that was a Ho-Oh. And then it becomes such a less magical moment by the time they reveal it. (laughs) Well, that is because Ash is a dummy. Of course. He has this encounter with a never-before-seen Pokemon, and then, you know, three episodes later, he just doesn't care about it anymore. Yeah, because, I mean, so I remember he has the moment at the end of the first episode where he sees it flying overhead, then he sees, like, a tablet on, like, a hieroglyph depiction, and he's like, oh, I saw that. And those two moments in such proximity felt like, oh, crap, this is going to be, like, a driving mystery of the show, and then, nope. I need to figure out how to fight rock types without a water type. I don't know, maybe catch a water type? No, we're just going to make my electric type even stronger. Hey, <laughs> when in doubt, use Pikachu. Yeah, just yeah. always. Um, yeah, but anyway, setting aside, like, let's look at ho in a vacuum. Setting aside the existence of Moltres, I really like this one because the design is so good. You already touched on how there are, uh, as you put it, Azteca elements. Um... Yeah, it's inspired by the Feng Huang, a mythical Chinese phoenix. Uh, but again, like I'm seeing Mesoamerican in its design. Uh, the name Ho-Oh is a romanization of the Japanese name for the Feng Huang. Uh, and that does lead to a slight complaint of mine in that the... Oh, I had this written down somewhere. I've already forgotten it. Ah, damn. Well, the Japanese name, I think, is Hao-Ao. Uh, hmm. Oh, wait, hoo there we go. Which rings so much better than Ho-Oh, because Ho-Oh is a snack cake. That's not a name for a majestic <laughs> legendary Pokemon, I think. It's a very good snack cake, by the way. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, the legendary birds Ho-Oh and Ding-Dong. Uh, so, yeah, um, some interesting mythic things here. Like, Lugia is supposed to be the trio masker of the legendary birds, the only one that can control uh, Zapdos, Moltres, and Articuno when they're fighting. And Ho-Oh was apparently the same kind of deal for the legendary beasts. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, brought them back to life at the Burn Tower. Uh, And yeah, I think the last thing I have to say here is just the shiny report, uh, which is that uh, the shiny is so good, because instead of it being red, green, and yellow, it's gold, red, and silver, which... Gives it a more metallic look, gives it a more, you know, fierce uh, deity kind of look. I would almost say that, so this is again going to come back to it, and I think I brought this up with the Moltres design, where what if Moltres is just like a highly evolved Sphero, and Mm -hmm. the color swap, while I do agree that the color swap and the other design accoutrements make it look majestic and fearsome, this definitely looks a lot more like a highly evolved Sphero than even the Moltres did. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like, just because the gold is so close to a Fero's nascent color. Um, if it weren't for, like, the red and green accents on the fa- on the ends of the feathers. Um, but uh, one thing that I did just think of, and I'm surprised this doesn't exist anywhere on the internet, Michael, tell me if you've ever seen this, but, like, a Simpsons shitpost where it's Lisa saying, poor, predictable Ash always picks Pikachu. 
And then it's Ash saying, good old Pikachu. Nothing beats Pikachu. <laughs> Accurate. Accurate. All right, I will make that later. <laughs> if, I if I can figure out how to MS Paint my way through it. Um, and just shop a Pikachu. No, sorry. Shop a, uh, an Ash hat on Bart. There we go. That's all I need yeah. to do. I will get that made. That'll be that'll be my new hit meme. Um, <laughs> I don't have yeah. uh, your closing thoughts on Ho Oh, by the yeah, way. Um, I think in a vacuum, it's a great bird. I just wish that there wasn't already a legendary bird Pokemon that is fire flying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, know. that's part think... of the reason why I don't have a lot to say about it is because yeah. it's like we've tread this ground before. It's you know, like the only thing I can really talk to about it being unique or interesting is the is just the way it looks, which is largely cosmetic, and I'm a fan of it. But like, I also don't think it does anything really too daring in terms of like the uh, the design type because it does look so much more like it's like it, what it's aping. Um, yeah, pretty much. Like, I think let me just double check. I think Sacred Fire. I'm trying to remember if that's an exclusive move to Ho Oh or. What it was because I remember Lugia has yes okay so Lugia had the exclusive move Aeroblast which was a very good and powerful uh, uh, flying type move and Ho had Sacred Fire which was a very good and powerful fire type move which was its own exclusive move up until Gen five when they let other Pokemon learn it making it mm-hmm. a little less special yeah uh, well, you know Entei okay I was mistaken Entei could get in special events I think. But, okay, so still, they kept it too legendary, so that's good. But yeah, I, think I mean, I just... Before I think, post. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just think that we'd be having a very different conversation about this Pokemon if they had at least changed the appearance, you know? If it yeah. didn't look so much like it was just copying the outline even of the Moltres and just taking away so much fire. Um, if it looked more like a hawk, for example, I think we'd be having a very different conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you the last thing Pokemon I have to say people. is... Having this redundancy of a another fire-flying legendary bird, uh, it you know we are going to get to some pretty weird and interesting type combos coming up in the next gen, thankfully. Mm-hmm. So this just seems like a last one, last touch of old gen thinking. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting a little bit weird because again, I think we talked about the fact that like. Up to now in the Pokedex, I think a full, like, 30, like, one-third of the Pokedex thus far is Water-type. Um, something else, there's some other insane percentage think, that has Poison-typing, but... Yeah, I don't remember the exact stats, but in Gen 1, it definitely along the lines of one-third was either Poison or Water, or in the case of um, the Tentacool line, both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, uh, so let's get to the first downloadable content Pokemon. <laughs> Pretty much. Alright, so our final Pokemon of the gen, number 251, Celebi. Uh, referred to at times as the new Mew, because it was you know, the second mythological, or, uh, yeah, mythic Pokemon. Um, so Celebi is a psychic and grass type. And so, yeah, obtaining Celebi in the old days was kind of wild, because there were in-person events like with Mew, but with Crystal, it was available via the Japanese-only mobile Game Boy adapter, a short-lived peripheral that connected to Japanese cell phones. And long story short, 
That makes Celebi DLC before there was DLC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I never obtained this Pokemon. Well, not through one of those events. I had a friend who traded me one. Um, but also, again, didn't realize there was a shiny Celebi, and the shiny Celebi is adorable. Well, you know, oh, yeah. it's another... It is yet another pink swap of the uh, Celebi color of the Celebi colors um, with green eyes, which I think is a really nice touch. Mm. Um, oh yeah, it's a very vaporwave kind of look, and I love it. Yeah, and I just think you know, I think overall this just has such a feeling of whimsy, where they took so many aspects and so many like little things that make it feel like a fairy or a pixie, and really take the idea of legendary to mean something other than just grandiose and overpowered they can make something that feels legendary in the sense of like the way you know pixies and fairies literally are legendary legends mm. themselves um but apparently this thing just be time traveling casually so. <laughs> yeah oh uh sorry before we continue with celebi i just realized something we didn't talk about mega tyranitar and mm -hmm. i feel like that makes sense because it just looks like tyranitar but bigger and spikier yeah, I mean, the Mega yeah. Evolutions, in a lot of cases, feel more like, just feel like, you know, I think Hound Doom's uh, Mega Evolution is the only one we've really been a true fan of thus far. And maybe yeah. Charizard's. Yeah. But I can't think of too many that we were, like, super, like, that we've had a reaction to that was anything other than, well, it's just this, but more, you know? Yeah, the Gigantamaxing that we've gotten in this most recent generation of games has led to more interesting weird uh like advanced designs than the mega evolutions ever did i think mm -hmm. yeah yeah anyhow sorry back to celebi uh yeah so it can time travel that is its key characteristic and that's not just pokedex bullshit there's actually an in-game event that required that uh <laughs> so in heart gold and soul silver there was an in-game event uh, where if you got promo Celebi, you could travel through time to face off with Team Rocket boss Giovanni, uh, who was in hiding during the events of those games. Uh, so I mentioned this to Baloo on Twitter the other day, but I think we should talk about this again. Giovanni is so strange to me, because here's a guy who is a gym leader, presumably a celebrity in the Pokemon world. But also he is the head of an, a crime organization that exists in at least two different regions of the world. And he makes sure to be on site for their capers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, he wasn't exactly running a covert operation. This wasn't exactly, like, Black Ops, like, how do we possibly connect him to these crimes? Like, he was not a Kingpin-level, like, how do we connect him to these? Mm. He was just straight up, like, having Team Rocket meet with him in his gym. People yeah. wearing large R's on their chests were constantly running in and out of the gym at Viridian City. Well, it's like, in, like, even in the games, like, he is there at Sylphco when they are trying to steal the Sylphscope, and presumably scientists see him come through, and you would think one of them would say, like, hey, isn't that the leader of the Viridian City gym? Mm -hmm. It's like if Pat Riley was involved in a bank robbery. Someone would think, like, hey, that looks like Pat Riley. Yeah, and I will say that the Pat Riley thing, he definitely looks like the anime version of Pat Riley slash the anime <laughs> version of Norman Osborn. I'm pretty sure Norman Osborn was modeled after Pat Riley, too. 
<laughs> or there was somebody that Norman Osborn is supposed to be modeled after. Oh, um, probably, or at least some more recent. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I'm pretty sure. But I'm pretty sure it was Pat Riley because the whole thing with Norman Osborn's hair is that the red in his hair, the waves in his hair, weren't supposed to be anything other than indicative of the fact that he uses a lot of product to slick his mm. hair back, like Pat Riley used to. Um, I don't know if Pat Riley still does. I haven't seen Pat Riley recently. The NBA isn't super focused on coaches being first and foremost and celebrities like they used to be anymore. Well, and he's a GM um, anyway, so that too. But anyway, um. Celebi, I, I like the little touch that it has an onion head, so it is the little green onion fairy. Mm -hmm. um, green onions are a favorite of mine. They, you know, bring a nice little, not spice, but like a nice little, like, you know, zap. They, they feel a little zappy in, in the flavor profile of any food. I love them for that. Mm. Yeah, like, I think it's cute that it has the shrine in the forest, which is a key factor of the... The crystal event uh, that you would do with this downloadable Celebi. Uh, what's interesting is that in the game, no, in the uh, 3DS Virtual Console re-release of Crystal, and man, if you don't follow Nintendo stuff, that is just a string of words right there. Um, since they couldn't do the mobile Game Boy adapter stuff, they just made it so that you would get a Celebi at a certain point, and then you could do like the small little in-game event with it. Or you get the item for a Celebi, rather. But yeah, so you could get a Celebi on cartridge, which would be nice. Or not even cartridge in this case, just like on the downloaded game for mm -hmm. the 3DS. You know, we've talked about the sort of moral spectrum and where Giovanni sits on it. I mean, and he definitely is like a very ruthless sort of not necessarily evil person. Because he does, because like in terms of like the operational individual level, like you definitely catch bad things that Team Rocket is doing, but all the bad things that they're doing are in the name of trying to right a wrong, um, at least in the original game. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was thinking, I like, I definitely, I definitely love doing that infuriating thing of like asking, like, how do we know this character is really evil? Um, my favorite one is Darth Vader in the original Star Wars. Like, how do we really know this guy is evil? Because Princess Leia literally was a spy who literally stole documents, of, like top secret documents, and her crew opened fire when they were being boarded. So, you know, Here's as far thing. as like Darth... You just, but the, the new... No, uh, the National Review ran an actual article at some point in like 2016 about, you know, the Empire might have had a point. I mean... You know, I'm not saying that I'm for people being enslaved, but what did the Empire really do that was bad? Like, they weren't, like, they were killing people that were actively, like, attacking their military bases and killing their soldiers, which is, sounds to me like terrorism. I mean, and, they killed their own soldiers who were part of a religious order, which I think under most qualifications would be genocide. And also, you know, they blew up a fucking planet with a laser beam. Okay, well, I'm talking about, like, the Empire at the start of A New Hope. Definitely a bad response to the state secrets being stolen by Leia. Um, but... They killed all the Jedi. But, I mean, there gotta be, like, average Joes who are getting health care. They're seeing public <laughs> education getting better funding in their areas who are kind of like, you know what, this Empire might not be too bad a thing. They enslaved the entire Wookiee home planet. Okay, yeah, that's shitty. You don't, you don't enslave people. I didn't know about the slavery part. 
I knew that the Wookiees weren't happy about it, but I mean, the Wookiees were definitely fighting a whole lot. Um, I mean, other than, like, I mean, the Empire definitely took, like, bad moves to get where they were going, but, like, the whole thing is, is, like, once they established their rule, what were they doing? I mean, it's one of the, you know, what, what does any fascist government do? You consolidate power to consolidate power. All right. I'm, I hope Ugh. that that generates just a ton of hate mail for us. <laughs> um, but I love Celebi. I don't have a whole lot to say about Celebi. I remember going to, uh, I remember my cousin going to the EB games and then me, like, he knew how to, like, he would glitch it and, like, clone his Celebi so he could just give as many of them away as he needed to. Nice. Um but yeah, remember in-person events? What a de- what a what a age we used to live in. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I love it. I don't have any closing thoughts on it, Michael. Yeah, no, I think uh, I've said everything that needs to be said. It's very cute. It feels like it's right up there with Mew. It doesn't feel like Mew, but it feels like it's on Mew's level, if you will. Hmm. They All made right. it different enough. All right. Well, that's going to bring us to our closing trio of segments. We have talked about the Pokemon as they exist within their uh, current game structure, let's talk about one thing we would do to change them. This is Mon Mon. Alright, uh, Michael, you have a pretty simple one. Yeah. Um, so, I think you know, two small changes. I hinted at Lugia, how it would make more sense as Psychic Dragon than Psychic Flying, uh, albeit in these games, Psychic Dragon would probably be too powerful a combination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which one are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the Psychic Dragon or are you going to choose the Fire Flying Bird? Yeah, so for me, I my temptation... Like, I agree with you, and I think that... I, we still haven't gotten a Psychic Dragon even to this point, right? Uh, I'll double-check that. I mean, but, it could be... I feel like if we had, we would know what it was, but... Um, like, I maybe they're dragons that can learn psychic moves, but... Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I will look this up as we're talking. But for my change... So oh, I'm sorry, that, that, was, that was half my change. The other would be that uh, if Celebi had been introduced later, it would totally be a grass fairy type rather than grass psychic. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, it's a fairy. And I think that yeah. just comes down to the fact that they hadn't thought about adding that typing before. Yeah, it's weird to me how selective they are with the retconning and updating of certain types. Like, it feels like this is an oversight on their part, but it also may be because Celebi... Well, no, Celebi appears pretty prominently in modern materials and stuff like that, like Pokemon Go and things. Like, it's pretty much accepted as, like, not just, like, a flash in the pan or something like that. It's accepted as, like, a part of this world in terms of ongoing media. Cerebi.net, which is probably the biggest Pokemon resource on the net, is named Mm -hmm. after Celebi. So, I think it's more like they will add types to Pokemon retroactively, but they mm. never want to change a type retroactively. Fair enough. So like yeah. the Magnemite line gained Steel, uh, Jigglypuff gained Fairy. They made, admittedly, they made um, Clefairy pure Fairy rather than being normal. But even then, that's just like normal is the one that they can say fuck off. We're gonna change you. But they've never done it where they have completely changed one of the other types. And uh, yeah. just to answer your question, by the way, uh, I can't believe I forgot about this. Latias and Latios are dragon mm. psychic. Okay. 
Yeah. So my change is pretty simple. Uh, we have a psychic flying type. I want a, I want a flying dark type in Ho-Oh. I think I just really would like the duality there. So rather than a shadow Lugia, give me a shadow Ho-Oh um, or a shadow version of Ho-Oh. Mm. Um, you know, I the temptation was to eliminate the Pupitar line, but then it's just obnoxious to have a two-stage evolution that evolves at level 55. Mm. Um, so oh, I would we'll get rather... To that in, we'll get to that in black and white. We got one of those and it sucks. Yeah, of course it does. So I would rather just change Ho-Oh to something slightly more interesting. Or, you know what, even rather than changing the typing, like, because that's the other thing about it, is that not only do we already have a fire-flying bird, legendary bird from Gen 1, but we also have another legendary fire type already in this generation. So just the redundance, it's a triple legendary redundancy, and we're only in Gen 2. Mm -hmm. um, so I would probably, rather than just changing the design and the look of it, I would default to changing the uh, the typing of it to dark type. Yeah. Um, and then again, yeah, have it be like a little bit more of a poster child for like this generation. Create a little bit more tension in this generation with the fact that you create, that you guys openly admitted that you created the dark type to counter the psychic mm. type's dominance of the, of the uh, type board. Make, like, I don't know why they didn't dig into that with the advertising and the marketing, but that's my whole take on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, um, the the box mascots really should have been a uh, like a dark and a steel type. Like really mm -hmm. lean into that. It's yeah. weird that the evolution that they add is dark and psychic rather than dark and steel as well. And I feel like that got left largely as a surprise until the release of the game, if I remember correctly. Huh. Uh, huh. But anyway, uh, we have talked about the Pokemon as they exist in their world. Let's bring them into ours. Welcome to Monster. A celebration of the harmony between humans and Pokemon. This is my Alright, um, the Tyranitar line, I think, is just going to be deep in the mountains somewhere. Like, these are the <laughs> kinds of creatures that, like, you have to, like, watch a David Attenborough documentary to hear about. <laughs> and when you do get to the segment of the, uh, you know, Planet Earth documentary where Attenborough is talking about the Tyranitar, he, it's that rare moment where you actually hear the palpable excitement in Attenborough's voice um, <laughs> that they actually got footage of this thing. Like, I just think that these creatures are going to be living in such remote scenarios because they would automatically become the apex predator of any ecosystem into which they're introduced. Um, so I see them living in, like, the Siberian steppe, you know? Those types of places. Um... As for the legendary dogs, uh, the Woofos, my only thought on the Woofos is that for some reason Entei seems like he would be in the military. <laughs> um, he does have that kind of, you know, pompous British colonel-y brass thing going on. Oh, no, you I was going to say that he totally feels like if Steve Rogers were turned into a Pokemon. Huh. Uh, I was like going to say, like, I look very... at Entei and I definitely can hear just like a, how dare you, sir? I can also see Entei looking at you after you try to hit it with a with a uh, you know hydro pump and then saying I can do this all day. <laughs> like sticks his chest out and just refuses to go down um, against like the Iron Man Blastoise that he's fighting. Uh, and as for the legendary birds, um, for whatever reason, here's a weird thing. I figure for some reason I feel like Lugia would actually like being in cities. 
Like, I could see Lugia having, like, a nest on top of the MetLife building, which, for as long as I grew up in New York, like, there... I remember for a number of years, the MetLife building was always home to peregrine falcons nesting. Because um, it was a relatively tall building in the area, and, yeah, you could just always see, like, a family of peregrine falcons, like, taking off and hunting on the Upper East Side from that building. It was pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, so Lugia just nesting on an Upper East Side building, just, you know, enjoying the psychic noise of people hunting pigeons in its spare time, just doing its thing. Uh, Ho-Oh is a complete trash bird. It would be out in the ocean somewhere hunt eating garbage off of bar barges. <laughs> I want to point out, Lugia, again, is 17 feet tall and weighs mm -hmm. 476 pounds. That is a you're... lot that's a I lot going on. I don't think, any, I think anybody's building. chasing that thing out of the city. Like, if it chooses <laughs> to nest on the MetLife building, like, you're not, you can't displace an endangered species. Like, if it chooses <laughs> to nest on the MetLife building, guess what? The MetLife building is now dealing with a fucking 17 foot tall bird. <laughs> Go pound sand. <laughs> fucking Bellasio was better before we had all these giant birds hitting <laughs> my thoughts every day. Oh, man. Um, but yeah. yeah, so those are my thoughts. Well, how about you, sir? <laughs> um, yeah, so the legendaries uh, would all be causing elemental chaos as their want. Uh, the Larvitar line, I think, would be great for excavation because uh, it's said that Larvitar just, like, eats the equivalent of a mountain before it pupates into a pupitar. Uh, so yeah, so who needs a giant grill to make a subway tunnel or something like that when you can just send a team of Larvitars to eat the dirt? Just say, okay, boys, there's lunch. Go after that until you see daylight. Well, so here's the thing, is that they are not destroying the dirt. The dirt is just moving through them, so they're just pooping dirt back out. They're, they're getting dirt poo. So I don't know if they're necessarily moving the, helping to move the dirt and excavate as much as they are just shifting it around a little bit. But yeah, I suppose if you attach like a little like catheter type of like pump to their little to their booties, like a little diaper with a vacuum type of thing, then, yeah, they're going to just chow down and dig you a tunnel. I mean, like, I get what you're saying, but I'm just thinking, considering even with a giant drill, you still have to find somewhere to put all the dirt anyway. Mm -hmm. Like, this would be kind of the same, I guess. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, so drills are designed with the corkscrew thing that, you know, as they continue drilling in, they're also pushing the dirt that they are drilling through out. Um, so I'm just thinking about the fact that, like, yeah, if you're going to set, like, five of these into a patch of dirt and tell them to keep eating until they create a hole, like, you have to have something to catch the dirt that's coming out the other side of them. Um, and I just, I just think it's a very funny, cute idea to have, like, five of them with little vacuum diapers on. <laughs> um, uh, on your Attenborough thing, by the way, I'm already certain that at some point after new Pokemon Snap comes out, there will be a David Attenborough-style parody. It's like oh my people God, doing yeah. Planet Earth narration over footage from Pokemon Snap. I mean, Nintendo and the Pokemon franchise as a whole have printed so much money at this point that they are probably going to get David Attenborough to do the, do the commercial himself. <laughs> um, but uh, overall, um, any, other, any other Pokemon in the world thoughts? Before no, it's it. like the second. legendaries would just be causing chaos, you know. Bring lightning, thunder, water, you know, giant flapping wings of death. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. what are you so let's move on to our favorite segment of the show. Yeah, well we talked about uh, eating dirt. 
uh, or Larvitar's Ian Gert, let's talk about Ian Pokemon in a segment that you like to call... Mon Appetit. Maybe you like my personal crack medicine. Mm -hmm. Surprise. I love that we have officially changed roles on that because I believe we flipped it for and for the last episode we did. And now we're just going to keep with that. I'm okay with it. Oh, we'll just bounce around. It's more fun All that right, way. Fair enough. So I'm so I'm a little bit torn because you know, like we said, we have a we have a trio of woofos, which is always a little bit like uncomfortable to talk about eating within our culture. Um, and you know, the rock the rock trio doesn't look very edible. Um, what I am thinking, though, is Celebi being an onion, and because I love green onions, I'm thinking there's something where you could, like, peel off, like, leaves of a Celebi's head <laughs> without hurting it. And, like, or maybe, like, you know, kind of like how you chop, like, with green onions, because they have, like, the long stalk, and you're able to, like, chop off the tops of the stalks and, like, leave it largely, the onion bulb itself largely untouched. Um, I'm wondering if you can't do that by giving it a haircut and using just, like, Celebi head, like, hair essentially as like Ooh. a seasoning on something yeah. like in fried uh, rice that'd be good there you go like so i'll just go with a very simple fried rice with uh celebi seasoning yeah. um yeah i was thinking something along the lines of that too uh albeit using celebi as the basis for a french onion soup Ooh, that is really good that does sound tasty right now yeah despite wow. the fact that la is like 75 degrees today <laughs> so yeah. it does somehow still sound good yeah, that's the thing. Like, a French onion soup is probably a dish I most miss about not eating in restaurants over the last year. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There are, I, like, I think, I, I mean, I think everybody's kind of at this point, especially now that we're hitting, like, the one year into quarantine slash lockdown and looking back on, wow, what about this past year? I have a year's worth of afro on my head right now uh, <laughs> that I did not have at this time last year. Um, but, yeah, there are a bunch of foods and different things that, like, are just too labor intensive to make it home just for myself um and soups are definitely one of those like soups weirdly enough like they are supposed to be relatively simple but i don't keep any of those ingredients around just on hand hmm, um yeah. so it just feels like a kind of labor intensive thing to have to go to the supermarket if i'm craving beef and barley soup and to buy like essentially 50 dollars worth of ingredients that i'm only going to use this one time yeah, I feel that. And, like, with French onion soup, so much of it is about, like, having that just hot cheese on top of the bowl and everything, mm -hmm. and breaking that apart, mixing everything together. Like, yeah, you need that in a restaurant. You can't just make that at home. Well, you can make that at home if you're a good enough chef, but I can't do that. I can't get mm -hmm. a takeout version of that. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, shout out to one year of quarantine coming up. Uh, so, shout out have, to soup. Do we have anything other than wearing masks and staying in that we would like to shout out or plug for the end of the episode, Michael? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I made a found crap feature a couple months ago called Horrible Death and Incredible Sex. You can find that on YouTube by, Google, by searching Horrible Death and Incredible Sex. It will be the first result. I want to let you guys know that Honestly, watching that thing high on edibles was two, living two hours of my life on hard mode. <laughs> it's Which is funny, because it was only 97 minutes. I know, but it just left, like, such an existential, like, 
damn. <laughs> at, like, in the very best of ways, just, like, really questioning, like, here's 97 minutes of how absurd American pop culture can be um, in terms of how we advertise to each other, in terms of how we uh, relate to one another as, like, this weird unified identity in America as consumers. In America, we are not workers, we are not thinkers, we are not readers, we are not artisans. The shared American identity is consumer. Yep. And this is a very weird, very baffling, <laughs> and very hilarious perspective on that. So Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I really, I really, uh, I forget who I was talking about it with, but I was like, dissecting it a little bit and i was like no there is a very cohesive thesis to this thing like this isn't just like randomly put together michael darling put together a goddamn like love letter to the absurdity of our consumerist culture uh, yeah, <laughs> i don't know if love letter is the right term more of a dear john letter i suppose <laughs> it's a yeah it's a french kiss off there we go but yeah i um, have threatened to make an audio commentary for it but i promise that the audio commentary would just be you know Explain where some of these clips come from, and not trying to explain what the uh, the brain worms behind it were. Truly, I don't think I think that would kind of break it. I think you mm. kind of have to let people draw from it what they will from their own experiences. Because the other thing about it is, is like it's all footage that I guarantee you, you will not go for more than five minutes at a time within this thing without seeing something that you recognize from your childhood, or hearing your parents talk about, or from your own teenage years. Um, and just to see it removed from its proper context and put in juxtaposition with all these things really just kind of makes you wonder, like, why did I just watch that commercial on TV when I was five and think that that was okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, man. All right. I have nothing to plug. Um, but as always, uh, I will, you can follow me on Twitter at Y underscore blue. That's W-H-Y underscore blue, B-A-L-L-O-O. Uh, Michael, where can people find you in addition to your found crap footage? Uh, at Future Has Been on Twitter. All right. Uh, well, and we thank are Mothman Pod. Don't forget that. All right. And, uh, well, thank you for calling that out. And uh, thank you for being here. I have been Yonato Blue. I was Michael Darling. Thanks for being here. Yeah.